Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our study of 2 Kings. We'll be starting chapter 3 in just a moment. But first, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we have been introduced to Elisha. Of course, Elijah was taken up into heaven in the whirlwind, accompanied by the heavenly chariot. And then Elisha takes over. And we see Elisha at the very end of chapter 2. You know, just depending on how one thinks about it, depending on how one counts, I suppose three miracles showing that he, in fact, is the legitimate successor of Elijah. You have um, the water being turned from bad to good, <laughs> which probably then affects the, lands be, the land being unfruitful and becoming fruitful. But So again, depending on how you count, but those are two miracles. And then last but not least, the she-bears coming out and um, destroying those who, or at least mauling, we don't know, mauling, killing, who knows, executing judgment upon those who mock the Lord and mock his prophet. And so um, three miracles, you can see, um, you know, God, God gives water, God gives food, and God chastens evil. And in all of those things we can rejoice and we can see a foreshadowing of what God um, will do abundantly in the new heavens and the new earth through Christ Jesus, rather than through Elisha, who is just merely a type of Christ. That is, what we find in the new heavens and the new earth is abundant, pure, cleansing water that flows from Christ to us. We find abundant fruit, the finest of wines, the fattest of meats, etc., given to us in Christ Jesus. And we find that all evil is, is chastened and cast out so that there is no more uh, mockery of God or the things of God. All right, so again, we're reading all of these scriptures in light of Christ because our Lord Christ himself says that these scriptures are about him and testify of him. In the background, then, we still have the split kingdoms, and now we have uh, this episode with Israel and Moab, of course, Israel in the north, and let's just simply pick up there with the new material, chapter 3, verse 1. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, that's in the south, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, of course, Ahab, arch-villain kind of guy in 2 Kings, and um, we know his sons aren't going to be very good either. So here's Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned for 12 years. Chapter 3, verse 2. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. All right, so there's some reform, some movement away from idolatry. But hardly enough that you would ever call Jehoram a good king. You would just simply refer to him as not as bad as his father and mother. 
Verse 3 explains this. Nevertheless, he, Jehoram, clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. And this is uh, it's just idolatry. You can see the sin of Jeroboam in the note on chapter 3, verse 3, uh, referring back to 1 Kings 12, 28. Jehoram opted for a more local and customary form of false worship in Israel. All right, so we're brought back up to speed with one of the main players in this next episode, uh, namely Jehoram, son of Ahab. Verse 4, now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. Well, what's going on? This is tribute. And here we see uh, the fluidity with which the term king is sometimes used. I mean, this is a kind of a vassal state, a conquered state, um, namely Moab, under Israel, and they, they have to pay Israel. So if you turn the page, just one page back to 581, you're going to see, again, this is in your Lutheran study Bible. If you're following along at home and you don't have a Lutheran study Bible, you should, you should buy one. You should sell all your other books until you, on eBay until you have enough money to buy a Lutheran study Bible. Okay, and then you see this chart, Travels of Elijah and then Travels of Elisha. If you refer to Travels of Elisha and look, down past the halfway point on the right-hand side, you're going to see Moab. And if you really kind of care about the nitty-gritty of the strategy involved in this section of chapter 3, um, pay attention to Moab, pay attention to the Salt Sea, and recognizing that there's a southern route to Moab, a circuitous route, I guess, um, south through the land of Edom, and then back up north to Moab, or one would simply go from, from Judah north or from Israel south and then east across the Jordan and into the land of Moab. But that gives you a sense for um, where Mesha, king of Moab, is. All right, verse 5 of chapter 3. But when Ahab died... The king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. Okay, so they planned to go south then, that southern route, uh, south of the Salt Sea, through Edom, then back up north to Moab. 
So far, so good? Okay, verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. All right, they grabbed the king of Edom on the way. Now we've got three kings. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. That kind of sounds like bad planning, doesn't it? <laughs> Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Oh, Coming from the king of Israel, what is this? He's blaming all of it on God, and he's insulting God. He's saying, he's saying, look, the reason why we have no water is because the Lord has going to, he's called these three kings, namely Israel, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, and he's going to give them into the hand of our enemy, Moab. So this is a faithless Accusation against God, blaming him. Yeah, but the desert. They should have planned. His lack of planning is then blamed upon the Lord. I'm sure that there is a, a, a lesson, an opportunity to repent for all of us in this, that our own lack of planning, our own sinfulness, our own stupidity, and that we shake our fist at the heavens against God. Um, <laughs> Verse, uh, verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the kings of Israel's servants answered, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Now we don't know exactly what that means, but the sense of it is, you know, was Elijah's apprentice, was his servant. And Elijah is widely known, of course, so the you know, implication here is that Elijah, uh, Elisha is a prophet of some substance. He happens to be going along with the soldiers. Why? Nobody knows for sure. The study note says that he's traveling with the troops, perhaps as a chaplain would. Perhaps. We just know he's there. Verse 12, And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him, to Elisha. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Again, this is idiomatic. It's not necessarily as confrontational as it might sound to us in English. Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Now that is spicy, that part. <laughs> Because what, what prophets is he referring to? In all likelihood, this is him accusing them of, hey, you want, you want me to tell you what you want to hear? You've got lots of prophets like that. Go to a prophet who will tell you exactly what you want to hear. Um, and particularly, he probably has in mind here the idolatrous prophets. We continue uh, with verse 13, right in the middle. 
But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So he's on with this charge again. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. So Elisha has no problem being a little spicy here in his speech. Uh, to a king who, again, let's not overlook this, to a king who has the prophet's life in his hands, he could very easily, humanly speaking, order him to be executed or imprisoned or tortured or whatever else. So uh, we, can't, we can't allow our hindsight to uh, in any way take away from the profound courage of Elisha in rebuking this idolatrous king. Now, interesting here because, not to go into the whole discussion, but of course, in Romans 13 and the first epistle of Peter, Christians are instructed to be subject to the ruling authorities, and that is our default. And yet, when those ruling authorities act in a way that is rebellious to God or counter the purposes of God, contrary to the purposes of God, um, we rebel. And we do so, uh, you know, I think in a humble spirit, but forthrightly, truthfully, honestly. And here would be one of, you know, I don't know, several dozen, at least, instances in the scriptures where uh, you've got rebellion against that authority. So here, here, I mean, outright Elisha is showing pretty blatant hostility toward Jehoram, saying, look, I wouldn't even be talking to you if, if not for the king of the south, Jehoshaphat, being with you. Um, interesting, he says, he says the Lord of hosts, that's the Lord of armies. Obviously, they're on the eve of battle, so we don't want to let that pass us by in 14. Verse 15 but now bring me a musician. This too is fascinating. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, came upon Elisha. It's very interesting because we've seen, we've seen a similar connection with music in the past, of course, uh, and the spiritual importance of music. When David plays the music, it seems to uh, hold back, restrain, the evil spirit that is pestering Saul. And so it has this spiritual effect. Here it, it has another spiritual effect. The, the musician plays. We can assume that this isn't Led Zeppelin or something, probably. I mean, this is, this is probably the praises of God. It's probably the equivalent of uh, liturgical or hymnic kind of music. Uh, but the hand of the Lord comes upon Elisha. So here we see the power of music. We reflect how Luther says, second to, second to theology, music is the most powerful and wonderful gift of God. It has the power to move our spirits and relax and calm us. And, and of course, there's a flip side to all of that too, isn't there? That music has the power to put us in a, yeah, put us in a terrible mind frame and a terrible spiritual place where we're prepared to uh, do violence, act greedily, fornicate, 
I think that's the trinity of uh, rap music, and maybe it goes beyond. But have you ever heard of? Have you? I, from time to time, I listen to rap music. I'm not. I, I haven't really been on a rap music kick recently. There's actually some Lutheran hip hop, Lutheran rap music. That's pretty good. It's pretty hilarious, actually. It's rapping about Lutheran theology. Um, I mean, hilarious in a good sense. But um, be that as it may, yeah, so, it, I mean, have you ever heard of a hip-hop song, though, that's been popular and that doesn't have to do with fornication, getting money, or then just drugs or alcohol, some sort of intoxication or inebriation? I can think of not a song, no, not one. Um, so that, that music, by and large, as a, as a genre, I mean, not always, of course, there's exceptions, but as a genre, like it prepares a person to act in those ways, it normalizes it. Anyway, music is a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing and very much uh, under underemphasized by us, I think, in this modern age. Well, okay, so we simply have the facts. The music played, the, sp the hand of the Lord comes upon Elisha, verse 16. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. That's good news because, of course, we remember the context. The only reason they're at Elisha's door is because they're all about to die of thirst. So he's going to, uh, God is going to make this dry stream bed full of pools. Verse 17, for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. Now, right, yes, <laughs> even though your lack, <laughs> lack of planning. Yes. Well, he, and here's a, prof, I mean, here's a profound example of God's grace and mercy toward his people. Their lack of planning, they fault him, they blame him. He is going to, uh, I mean, also, there's not really an indication that, you know, Israel, before it went out into battle, God's people, before they went out into battle, should consult with the Lord. And, of course, they didn't. They just went out unilaterally. You know, so there's all kinds of signs of things not functioning the way they're supposed to function and obvious accusation made against God. And yet he's so gracious and so merciful, he's going to give them what they need. He's going to make the dry stream bed into pools of water, and he's going to do so miraculously. That's the point of mentioning um, that there's not going to be wind or rain. Like this is going to be a miraculous doing of God. There's not going to be wind or rain so that you're going to not just be able to say, oh, a storm happened to come, you know. But this is, which I think we sometimes do too, when we, we pray and pray for something and then it comes and we go, oh, well, that was just coincidence or, oh, of course it was supposed to work out that way or, you know, and we were very quick to discredit the hand of God um, and not, not give him thanks and praise as we ought. So here too, an opportunity for us to repent. And then I love verse 18. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. So this is a piece of cake. You, you want me to make water in the middle of the desert? No problem. This is easy. This is easy. And then he says, he will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell 
every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. All right, what's going on here? This is, this is not only a military victory, but a punishment on behalf of God meted out against the Moabites for their idolatry and rebellion against him, for their wickedness as a nation. And so you see this kind of scorched earth thing going to take place. I mean, they're going to they're gonna throw rocks in all the fields and all of that um, so that they have a hard time, so that they have to labor harder for their crops in the future. If they're ever going to rebuild, that will be stunted and prevented to some extent. Okay, so God's going to give you water, God's going to give you the victory, and you're going to be executors of God's judgment against Moab. Verse 20, the next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came out from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. All right. Any questions? So far, so good. Straightforward enough. Pastor. Uh, yes, please. I was just going to mention, uh, this appeared to have started with uh, a breaking in the contract where the king of Moab didn't uh, you know, pay tribute. And then it turned out to be a judgment against Moab because of idolatry. It ex you know. Right. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, of course, Moab and the history of Moab and the history of Moab with God's people all the way back down to the time of the Exodus and the conquest of the Promised Land. I mean, it, and earlier than that, the history with Moab is deep. Um, same with Edom. But I think it makes more sense to just think of these events in a localized fashion, as you just put it, as the text here puts it, that the reason for this isn't necessarily any long-standing you know, issue. It's that uh, he had promised Ahab X amount of uh, lambs and X amount of wool, and now he's going to renege on that because, well, I mean, probably we would too. Whenever there's a transition in power, there's that opportunity to, at bare minimum, renegotiate the contract. <laughs> and so you can't, I mean, on the one hand, absolutely you can fault him because he's not being true to his word and his pledge and holding up his contract. Okay. And another way, in a human political way, you can hardly fault him for trying to take advantage and exploit that weakness. Our politicians do that kind of thing all the time. So it's not righteous, but it's just the way of the world. Very common. Um, you know, rightfully so, rightfully so, uh, they, they come up against, uh, I mean, rightfully so, Jehoram isn't going to stand for this and, and gathers the other two kings and they go against him. All right, well, the water comes. Now, now for the victory. That's uh, verse 21. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them 
as red as blood. Now this is curious, and if you look down at the study note on verse 22, it says, reflection of the sun's early morning glow on the reddish cast of the soil gave the water the appearance of blood. From this phenomenon, the Moabites drew the false conclusion that the allies had struck one another down. Because you do have two, well, you actually have three, of course, functioning nations there, so it's possible, but apparently they mistook this, and maybe there was some supernatural aspect of this involved, but they mistook the red color for blood, and so they go up there uh, in disordered fashion, and you can imagine what happens. So verse 23, they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees, till only its stones were left in Kir Hereseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. Verse 26, when the king of Moab, oh yeah, this is disgusting. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel. And they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. All right, now the pronouns get confusing at the end of that verse. And so if you look at, uh, well, and then for the purposes of sacrificing his son, also look at the study note on verse 27. Remarkable sacrifice to invoke the Moabite god's sympathy. Perhaps this was Chemosh, who we've heard of before. Um, and then this wrath against Israel, the meaning is unclear. The Hebrew term commonly speaks of God's wrath. Um, the LXX, that's Roman numerals 70, and that stands for the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament indicates the Israelites felt regret. So that's the, that's the interpretation of the authors of the Septuagint as they are translating the Hebrew text. Their, their translation of it is that Israel felt regret. The armies perhaps withdrew from Mesha to show their revulsion at the human sacrifice. And thus then the final sort of phrasing of that difficult, grammatically difficult verse. They withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Who is they? 
the study note here indicates perhaps both. Perhaps this was a sickening sort of conclusion to the whole thing, you know, and, and that was like, it was so nauseating, at least, or at least to the Israelites, they figured, well, we've made our point, we've won the battle, we're, that's disgusting, we're out of here. Who knows? Who knows? Um, again, the study note says, the armies. Whose armies? Intentionally ambiguous, I would think. The armies perhaps withdrew from Mesha to show the revulsion at the human sacrifice. Also, Jehoram and the Israelite leaders may have offended the Judeans and even the Edomites by the extreme nature of the siege or the negotiations which brought on the horrific sacrifice. Yeah, so that offers several other theories or possible theories, doesn't it? Um, of course, you just have to remember, Israel in the north is steeped in idolatry too, and so it's hardly like they suddenly clutched their pearls and ran away from this. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. How about this? That's an amb- it's a grammatically ambiguous verse. <laughs> Some things we just, we've lost, and we just don't know for sure. Pastor? Mm-hmm. Um, Elisha in his prophecy said that they should go in and take every city and kill every tree and stop up the springs. Was that done or was that not done or do we know? It seems like by and large it was done. I think that that's right. I I mean, I don't think we're going to get a surprise later on that they didn't do a sufficient enough job. I I don't recall off the top of my head. But I suspect that it ends there without comment is that they sufficiently did it. I do know we pick back up with Jehoram a bit later, but I don't know that we've got anything definitive there that says one way or the other. So I think the assumption of the text would be it was done sufficiently. Yeah, it was kind of barren anyways. Yeah, only its stones. Leaving a barren landscape was, I think, the sense. Yeah, chapter 325, just talking about they overthrew the cities, they threw stones on the fields, on every good piece of land, that is. They stopped up the springs, they felled the good trees, only its stones were left. And then the study note indicates... Barren lands, only its stones, barren landscape. Which that seems to be kind of a harsh environment anyway. Yeah. I mean, thus, the three armies not having anything to drink. Yeah. So I think sufficiently done. Okay, well, Israel has a victory, but in one way, shape, or form, it ends with this kind of bitter taste in everyone's mouth. All right, that takes us on to Elisha and the widow's oil. Now, we're going to see not an identical one-to-one compare-contrast between Elijah and Elisha, but we're going to see a lot of overlapping themes. And that serves two purposes, to show us the continuation of Elijah's ministry in the person of Elisha, And then more importantly, to show them both as being types and foreshadowings of Christ, the the 
capital P prophet of God, the one completely true and faithful prophet of God who uh, at the time of this writing was yet to come. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, there's this reference to this enigmatic group again, cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. All right, well, usury is forbidden in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament law. And so the fact that there's usury going on is already a subtle or not so subtle indication of the corruption that God's law is not being followed. I mean, by the way, as an aside, just to show you that we're probably a lot more wicked than we think we are, uh, Christian church fathers up until, <laughs> I suppose, up until the very present, um, but certainly manifestly it was the case, I mean, all the way through Luther and the Lutherans, that usury is inherently wrong, that uh, our mortgages are inherently sinful. Um, Again, I think not so much that we, uh, not so much that we have them, but that those who have this great wealth exploit the poverty of the masses uh, by way of drawing interest from all of us, effectively turning us all into slaves. Even though you know, one day a year we all shoot off fireworks and beat our chests about how free we are. Uh, we're quite, yeah. See how free you are if you stop paying your mortgage. Free to live under a bridge. So, and your mortgage right now, at least here in Orange County, is probably cheaper than rent. Probably cheaper than renting a two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I mean, this is why, this is why, by and large, usury is, I don't want to launch in anything deeper than that. Yeah. Okay, so already in the text, things aren't going the way they're supposed to. Um, this creditor is going to come, and he's, go and he's going to, uh, I, should, I shouldn't be sexist. Maybe it's she is going to, no, <laughs> just teasing. All right, the creditor is going to come and take the two children to be slaves. Now, I, I mean, not only is that terrible, because the, the children are going to fall victim, um, but, the, but the wife is going to fall victim, too. This widow is going to fall victim, too. Um, because if you're, if you're all on your own as a, as a widow, it's not like it is today. You don't just go get a job. Um, you, you have family that takes you in or you're on your own, including extreme poverty and or prostitution, etc. So this is a very, very dire circumstance. You don't call up the government and say, hey, um, bail me out. Uh, it doesn't work that way. So this is, a, this is a dire set of circumstances. Again, we've seen a widow before. This goes back to 1 Kings, uh, Kings 17. Um, of, course, of course, Elijah is going to have mercy on a widow and, that, and her son. Here you've got a widow and uh, her two children. Verse 2, And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has 
nothing in the house except a jar of oil. That's familiar too, isn't it? Because the original widow of Zarephath, I think she had, what, just a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, I think. And so now she's got just a little bit of oil. Verse 3, this is such a great, I love this though. This is just fantastic. I guess teach this to the kids. I don't know when. Maybe it was during a vacation Bible school I got to teach it. It's just a great story. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors. Go knock on the door and get all the Tupperware you can. Borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons. Okay, now we learn that the children are sons. And so they would be definitively her means of provision, but not if they're enslaved. Shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So what's going to happen? The oil's never going to run out. Yeah, as much as she can get in, that oil thing is just never going to run out. So she's going to fill all of these empty vessels with oil. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. Probably they being the sons. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Ah, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So obviously, by way of looking back to Elijah, we've pointed out some of the similarities. And looking forward to Christ, we see that an unpayable debt is owed. And we see that Elisha comes and miraculously pays that debt and more. And so we think too of Christ and the debt of our sins and what flows from him. You know, Christ is, Christ is in some places likened to an olive and in order to get the olive out of the or the oil out of the olive, what do you have to do? Yeah, press, crush the olive, and out comes the oil. And so we can think of we can think of the olive being crushed and the, the oil filling the vessels here. We can think of Christ being crucified and his blood paying the debt and overflowing in righteousness and blessing, life and salvation to us. And so we can see very clearly a a beautiful hidden foreshadowing and typological picture of what, of what Jesus is going to do for us and, and, and indeed has done for us. Okay, shall we move on? Yeah, please. I'm thinking of the root verses where the prosperity gospel comes from. Could this be one of them? <laughs> yeah, may, maybe so. I mean, yeah, I guess that's right if you... Uh, well, I suppose that that's precisely the problem with not seeing Christ in a text like this. Maybe if you pray to God, he'll, uh, he'll miraculously fill your bank account or something, right? Maybe the more bank accounts you open, the more he'll fill. 
<laughs> I don't know. Yeah, this is nonsense. But, but what have we done? I, I thank you for bringing this up, Barry, because this is such a great illustration. What do we do with the prosperity gospel? Very concretely, we, we replace Christ with mammon. I, the same thing happens, I'll, I just can't forget this because I was forced to study this and I did an Issues Etc. interview, I think it was about 25 years ago, or that's what it fe feels like now. But it was on one of uh, Joel Osteen's books, and do you remember when Isaac is uh, nearly sacrificed by Abraham, and God provides a ram in place of Isaac, and it said, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Who is, I mean, what is God going to provide on the, on the mount? Not a ram, but the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who dies in our place. Not a ram who dies in the place of Isaac, but the lamb of God who dies in our place that we might have eternal life with God. So what is going to be provided? Christ. How does Joel Osteen read that text? Money. Ah, it's not, it's not a prophecy of, of God giving us Christ and providing. It's a prophecy of if we're willing to sacrifice everything to God, he'll, yeah, he'll provide it to us. So if we'll sacrifice our Isaac, which is what? Translated to handing over our bank accounts to Joel, then we have sacrificed our Isaac and God will reward us by providing super abundantly. We can expect that. So look at that. I mean, it's just, it's disgusting. It's just disgusting. But, but on a slightly more formal level than that, where Christ is replaced with mammon, quite literally, you can see it. And, and so too, uh, one would do, if, if you're going to use this text as a proof text for the prosperity gospel, you're going to simply replace Christ with mammon. All right, chapter 4, verse 8. One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Now behold, I know that this is a holy man of God, who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. Just checking the study notes to see if there's a reference here to the gospel. I don't see one. Anyway, let's continue on. Verse 11, One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And, she, and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, 
and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And she said, At this, excuse me, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. All right, so this is, this is another beautiful story. And I keep, I'm looking for, like, here's the reference in verse 8, study note verse 8 to Shunem, Elijah's Second deed has two miraculous elements, the birth of a son and then later the healing for the son. That kind of spoils it. But it doesn't tell us where Shunem is. That was, that was my curiosity just reading through this. I forgot to look that up. So, okay, well, be that as it may. All right, so the general contours are... are straightforward enough. She provides abundantly and generously for this servant of God, and he repays the favor by granting her, apparently there's some barrenness here. Her husband is old. We don't know exactly the cause, um, but there, there is a miraculous child at the word of Elisha. The woman conceives and indeed has a child. So she, um, you know, she's afraid. It's so unrealistic, so unlikely to happen. I mean, she views it as impossible to happen by natural course. And so she says, you know, don't, don't overpromise. Don't, you know, don't lie to your servant is idiomatic, I think, for you know, in trying to repay me, don't overextend in, into that which is impossible. But of course, he does that very thing, and uh, with God, all things are possible. But she's not an Israelite. That's what I was. That's what I was wanting to know. I was wanting to know where Shunem is. Like, what's this reference to where he says, you know, there's this back and forth? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she said, I dwell among my own people, that, that would seem to mean like I don't need anything. I have my needs met. But again, I don't know if she's necessarily a foreigner. Has, does anyone have their uh, smartphone up and you want to Google Shunem? Find out if Shunem is in the, uh, the north or the south or one of the... Because it sure would be nice for that to be in a study note, wouldn't it? I wonder if that was a mistake, because they even list Shunem and then say nothing about it. And I apologize in preparing rather hastily, admittedly. I didn't even stop to ask that question. All right, so this is a, I mean, this is a great story. So you've got, you've got Elisha helping a widow on the one hand and a wealthy married woman on the other hand. In a sense, he gives, he gives uh, the widow back her two sons. And he gives a son out of nothing to the wealthy woman and her husband. 
Pastor? Uh, yes, please. I, I see on a map here know. that this is north of Jezreel. It's in uh, Israel, uh, just west of Mount Mora, M-O-R-E-H. So. Okay, so it is in uh, it is in the north. Yes, yes. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, I kind of suspected so because what other king would he be referring to? What other commander of the army would he be referring to in verse thirteen? The only thing that gives pause is her answer, I dwell among my own people, but now we have it confirmed. Is it somewhere in the study Bible? Oh, it is on the map on page uh, 581. Is it on 581? Yeah. Um, looking, just for those of you following along at home, uh, 581, if you find the Salt Sea at the bottom and just follow the Jordan River up, Shunem is west of the Jordan River, just north of Jezreel. If you come to what will later be called the Sea of Galilee, you've gone too far. All right, thank you. All right, so you have this miraculous sun given, but tragedy strikes. Chapter 4, verse 18. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Now, that's quite the statement of faith, and her actions show quite a bit of faith. I actually, I, I think it's kind of funny, because it's like, what would you do if your, if your microwave broke? You take it back to where you got your microwave. And what would you do if your miracle son has died? Take him back to the one who gave you the miracle son. So she puts him up in the room. She, you know, shuts the door. She goes down. She says, okay, get me the... You know, get me the motorcycle, give me the donkey and one of the servants to go along with me. I'm going to go chase down the man of God. And he's like, well, what's going on? It's, it's not a holy day that you should go and uh, probably have him offer a sacrifice or do some other kind of religious service. Um, so where are you going? And she says, all is well. And, you know, while that may be covering a whole gambit of emotions and a deep well of profound sadness, um, I think best to take it as a statement of faith, even so. Verse 24, Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel due west of Shunem. And, of course, the site where Elijah very famously battled the prophets of Baal, and they were all slain. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. 
run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, again, how do you, t- I don't know how you take that unless you take that as faith. It's either faith or a nervous breakdown, but I think faith, given that it's recorded. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. I mean, why would Gehazi do this? Because it's probably not really proper or right. It's weird. It's unusual. It might be against various social norms, etc. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Here comes the the raw emotion. You know, what does she mean by, did I ask the Lord for my son? I didn't. You know, and you got this raw emotion, almost like it would have been better for you to not give me a son than to give me a son and have him die on my lap, you know. Uh, Then did I not say, do not deceive me? So she takes kind of a double meaning there. Like, do not lie to your servant. She kind of uses that in an expanded sense of like, hey, you gave but then took away. You deceived me in effect. He, Elisha, said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. Now this has to do with the haste of the journey. Um, And a similar, you know, there's all kinds of, not that there's any like real, at least not that I can detect, any real logical, coherent structure here. But there are illusions that remind us of Jesus. The, as the woman falls and grasps hold, the Shunammite grasps hold of the feet of Elisha. You can think of Mary Magdalene in the garden grasping hold of the feet of Jesus. There's just these little shots and patterns. Jesus in sending the 70 in haste, you know, not to dilly-dally, not to, not to be greeting you know, people and like, but to be strictly about the mission, you see that here in the sending of Gehazi. Okay, and then he gets on to this business. So don't greet anyone. If they greet you, don't reply. Like, you are to just go. And lay my staff on the face of the child. So the staff is to be the token of his, of his office and authority. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was no sound or sign of life. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? If you're Gehazi and you tried to do this and it didn't happen... Therefore he returned to meet him and told him the child has not awakened. When Elisha, you know, it is interesting language. And again, we get this flash of Jesus. Remember with the, with the girl and he says, she's only sleeping. You know, Gehazi says she is not awakened. So again, you get these kinds of flashes of the ministry of Christ shining through the text. 
Verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child laying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Of course, our Lord Jesus, when he does his resurrections, he doesn't pray. He does it himself. Okay? And here he, Elisha, by distinction, prays to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child. That part is similar with uh, what Elijah did to the ra- in the ra- raising of the widow of Zarephath's son. Okay? And then this is a different element, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of As he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Life returned to him. Now, I think what is going on here, um, I mean, aside from the fact that this is miraculous and weird and we have no clue what's going on here, but what's going on here theologically, I think, is a form of the incarnation. Um, Maybe let me start at this point, kind of at the midpoint. Um, what is he doing in touching a dead body, especially touching a dead body so intimately that their two bodies are touched essentially one for one? I mean, that's, he's, he's becoming unclean. He's touching a, a corpse. Of course, this is Jesus in touching the dead and unclean. Is Jesus rendered unclean? No. He renders the unclean clean and the dead alive. And that's precisely what's going on here. So the uncleanness and the death doesn't infect Elisha, but rather through Elisha, God is granting cleanness and life back to this boy. That's maybe the starting point of what's going on. And then what is this one-to-one business? I mean, to us, it strikes us as weird, and we live in such a perverse time. We think perversely. But what is this, what is this one-to-one sort of like eye-to-eye, mouth-to-mouth, hand-to-hand, body-to-body what is that like? Uh, to me, it's very much like the incarnation. It's quite poetic and it's quite abstract, but it's very much like Christ Jesus coming to us, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand, body to body, becoming precisely as we are and transferring his life and his cleanness to us so that we who are dead in our trespasses and sins are made alive in Christ Jesus. So that's my, that's my read on this and why it's there and why the Lord sees fit to do it this way and why these things are recorded for us in the scripture. I think what we have is a, a foretaste of or a foreshadowing of uh, the incarnation and the transformation that Christ works in us from death to life through his own flesh as it were. Okay. Um, We left off at the end of verse 34 with the child becoming warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. I mean, what is the sneezing? Who knows? Who knows? Um, But seven times, we do know is a number symbolizing the work and action of God. 
the child opens his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi. Elisha summons Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. You could turn that into a movie, couldn't you? Yeah. I think so, the whole thing. We need that. We need a, a good movie about Elijah and Elisha. All right, well, that will, uh, I mean, more could be said, of course, but I've probably said enough. I find this to be a foreshadowing of Christ, his incarnation, his work, and ultimately our resurrection from the dead. Um, let's pause there for today. Next week, we'll go into chapter 4, verse 38. Elisha purifying the deadly stew. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. All right. The Lord be with you.